The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, the title comes from Stephen King, who long before he became one of the most successful writers on the planet, was a passionate and devoted reader. Portable magic, he said. Books are a form of portable magic. Our guest today, the scholar Emma Smith, has picked up on this idea for her book, which traipses through the history of books and their readers. Human beings did not always have access to that portable magic, but for thousands of years, they have. And for hundreds of years, it's been pretty available to large numbers of us. I can't imagine life without books. What would I give my loved ones at Christmas? How would I treat myself? And what would this podcast be? The history of blank? And yet, I've been kicking around long enough to remember when I felt the same way about other things that aren't around anymore. Let me lay out two examples to see what you think. The first is food. I think we can all agree that we could probably get the nutrients we need from pills and shakes and manufactured nutritional biscuits and so on. I've even heard this discussed favorably. No more cooking. Less food wasted. Let's open the doors to our new future and not look back. But I don't think the idea has ever really caught on. Because we'd miss the experience of eating. We'd miss the varying textures At least for now, it seems the sandwich and the salad and the soup and the chicken leg and the corn on the cob are all here to stay. On the other hand, if you told someone in 1975 that someday they'd stream all their music onto a single device and there would be no albums and no album covers, they'd probably say they'd miss that. It has nothing to do with the musicians, really. These albums, there are designers who make them and who make the cover art, but the experience of getting an album and looking at the cover and the excitement of playing the record inside, the absence of that has changed our relationship with music. We gave that up. So with books. Books are in the middle of those two examples, aren't they? You could live a life without a physical book right now. You could rely on your computer and your phone and your e-reader to deliver the words to you. And yet, books are still in print and being bought. Albums have made a little comeback, too. Maybe that bodes well for books. People like these objects. And a book, I would argue, is even more imprinted in our collective minds, no pun intended, than albums and their art ever were. Enter Emma Smith. Her book is a triumph, a celebration of all the features of a physical printed book, Things you knew and a lot of things you didn't. The paper, the spine, the glue, the art, the words, the feel, the smell, the impact on the reader. Books are portable magic. Well, we know that's true about the text. The stories can take us around the world in an instant, can put us in Narnia or Middle Earth or at Hogwarts, can make us laugh and cry and want to take up arms against the barbarians at the gate. But the book as a package for delivering these miracles and books treated as miracles or treated as if possessing magical powers or as if harboring dangerous secrets or embodying divine power or evil itself. How it all happened, what it's all meant, how it's affected princes and paupers and priests and parishioners and maybe a pirate or two as well. Why not? I'm on a roll. Pirates... uh, Oh, yes, people. Well, 
That is a story worth telling. A book about books with our guest Emma Smith today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We will have Emma Smith here in a moment. What a wonderful person she is. What a delight she was to talk to. I can't wait to share that with you. But first, let's sneak in a little Kafka. We're still doing our randomized look at one of the 99 pieces of Kafka's life that his biographer, Reiner Stock, found interesting enough to put in a whole separate book. Not in the magisterial multi-volume life, but in the book, Is That Kafka? Which, by the way, Is That Kafka is also the name of the game show that runs on the channel that I watch every night after I close my eyes and drift off to sleepland. It comes on before literary Georges and after Not Now, Count Tolstoy, Not Now. Let me consult the random number generator here. We'll plug in 1 through 99 and voila, generate. Whoa, wait. It's 75. That's what we landed on last time. I need to check. Maybe that's a cookie issue. I need to check if this thing is truly random. We've only done this three times. (laughs) Okay, let me try again. 78. Hmm. I will trust that sometimes randomization seems a little unrandom. That's the benefit of having a computer do this for us. So we turn to number 78 in our book which I see is another example from the section called Elsewhere. It is called Kafka Rides the Carousel. Hmm, Kind of intriguing. So while you are listening to whatever goodies we have inserted for you at the break, I will be busy reading these pages, and afterwards I will report back, unless number 78 is terribly boring, in which case I'll hustle you past this whole blasted segment and we'll go straight to Emma. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure Every week, Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app 
or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are back. Okay, number 78. This is a funny little one. Kafka has been visiting a sanatorium, paging Mike Palindrome. That's his thing. He's up in the mountains. This is in July of 1912. And while he's there, he travels with a group of young children to a Markman's, Marksman's Festival. Seems to be some kind of carnival. Along with a barber and the town clerk and a doctor, there are some grown-ups who are looking after a group of young children, little girls who are ages, I guess, 6 through 13, who are dancing at this festival and who may or may not have eaten dinner yet. And Kafka buys them a round of soft drinks, and then they all get on a carousel to ride around, including Kafka. It seems innocent enough, though I'm not sure where the parents are. I guess I guess one of the parents owns the carousel, so presumably this is all okay. Kafka says, we have a seat and go for a spin in a coach. Other girls try to join us, hoping to enjoy my money too, but are rebuffed against my will by my girls. The owner's daughter checks the bill so that I don't pay for the outsiders. I'm ready to go again if they want to, but the owner's daughter herself says that that's enough. She wants to go to the... Uh, oh, the sweets tent. She wants to go to the sweets tent instead. In my stupidity and curiosity, I lead them to the wheel of fortune. They spend my money very sparingly insofar as that's possible. Then on to the sweets tent. End quote. Kafka seems to be surrounded by this pack of youth and absorbed by the experience. It feels a little like being a chaperone on a school trip or presiding over a birthday party where there are more kids flurrying around than you're used to, and you're sort of swept away by their energy. And even though you're in control as the grown-up, you're sort of secondary to their interests. And you're fascinated by this amoeba's human-like features. He says, Now they drink another soft drink and sweetly express their thanks, the eldest for all of them and each for herself. When the dancing begins, we have to go. It's already 9.45. And so his night with six kids aged ages six to 13 and a barber and a couple of other grown-ups from the sanatorium is over and they all walk home. Sometimes it's fun to do things like carnivals or zoos or watch cartoons with kids. Even if you're paying for everything, that's just part of the deal. And Kafka expresses this perfectly. He says, quote, I felt the girl's experience more intensely than my own act of giving. End quote. Not bad, number 78. I'll cross that one off our list with some thanks to the gods of randomization for pointing us toward it. Emma Smith is next. Okay, joining me now is Emma Smith, professor of Shakespeare studies at Oxford University and the author of This Is Shakespeare. She's here today to talk about her book, Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers. Emma Smith, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the title, which you draw from Stephen King. Like me, you seem to be a fan of his book on writing. I love that book. I've read it several times. And Portable Magic, you say, is a book about books rather than words. So what can you explain that a little bit for our listeners? 
Yeah, so I think I absolutely love on writing. Let's just have a sideways recommendation of that to anybody who is thinking about how they might improve their own writing or understand a bit about how other writers do it. Brilliant book. And uh, Stephen King says, books are a uniquely portable magic. And Mm. I was really entranced by that. But what I mean by saying my book is about books rather than words is that it's about the objects in which we encounter the stories and the characters and the themes and the ideas in books. Mm -hmm. It's not so much those stories, themes and ideas themselves, although what I am interested in is how the physical form of books, the ways we encounter them with all our senses, actually do affect those other meanings. Yeah, right. I'll give you a a concrete example that is five minutes old. Uh, Before we started our conversation, I decided that I really would like to receive a copy of This Is Shakespeare for Christmas. So I was putting it on my Amazon wish list for my family members to see and hopefully uh, purchase for me. And I noticed that, at least at the moment, the hardcover is slightly cheaper than the paperback. And it really threw me for a loop because I really had to consider, you know, ordinarily the cost kind of drives my decision, but I really had to consider, do I want this in hardback or paper? I I have to admit, I kind of like paperbacks better, but I know the hardcover is, it's more durable and, but it really is. I mean, you could have told me, well, one has an appendix or one has an introduction by so-and-so, and and that probably wouldn't have mattered as much to me as the feeling I get when I hold the book in my hand and open it up and engage with the words and and the author and and commune with that person across space and time. It matters to me how that book feels in my hand. I completely agree. That's such a good example. I think there is something different about a paperback. It's more approachable. It's more portable. It's more easy to, you know, operate with one hand or to be reading in, you know, in the bath or something like that. You don't feel it's quite so valuable an object. I find dust jackets on hardbacks a bit of a a a nuisance. They always get a bit tatty. You don't (laughs) want them to get tattied. You take them off. What's the point of having them? Uh, And yeah, and one of the things I loved finding Finding out about Importable Magic was the development of the paperback, which is a, a really a, largely a post-war American phenomenon. There's this extraordinary story that the American publishing world comes together as never before to supply free books to service mm. personnel during, during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And these books are uniquely soft-backed. Um, they're actually printed on the uh, Reader's Digest uh, print. So they're like little magazines and then cut in half. And that produces a new readership who are used to encountering their books with these relatively soft covers, a bit more sort of manageable, a bit less, um, what would the word be, a bit less off-putting, a bit less austere, a bit less Mm -hmm. formal. Yeah, That market is the one that really has dominated ever since. One of the things I always think is it, there's a reason, isn't that the Beatles never wrote a, a song called Hardback Writer. <laughs> that's, a complete, that's a completely different person, isn't it, from Paperback Writer? Yeah. And yet, you know, something does draw me to the hardcover because sometimes when I get a novel or something, or a, in your case, a, a book about Shakespeare, I'll sit up a little straighter in my chair. I'll give it a little more attention. I'll maybe 
make it more of an event to, you know, have a destination with the book mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll have a completely different experience than the one where I'm taking it with me on the train or uh, having it on the, the bedside table. So yeah. I, I, yeah. it's a, it's a tough choice. Maybe I'll just ask for both. Um, Jack, let's let's exchange addresses. I would be honored to send you a copy oh, of that oh, book for your Christmas. So take it off the list. <laughs> okay. Um, so we've. I, I think people are probably familiar with this. Everybody who's listening to this has had a book in their hand, and they're aware of the the size and the heft and the paper and the typeface and the cover and the even the smell and and books as they age and so on. Um, but I want to kind of. Uh, make sure people understand that your book is about more than just, you know, what you'd find. What I just described might be something that you'd find a, an op-ed piece in The Guardian or something where someone is talking about how great it is to see books. You really dig into the history and talk about negative examples. And maybe we should talk about that because... That might get us away from the sort of idealization of books that sometimes conversations like this can have, where we just talk about how wonderful it is to sit with a book and how we all love that experience. Absolutely. And then we, you know, we buy a candle, don't we, with the smell of books yeah. or something. It's all quite cozy, and a, but a little bit tweak. No, I, I agree. I mean, that one of the things that really drew me to write this book was to understand why we are so weird about the book as an object, why mm. it's a different kind of object from similar, relatively cheap things that we have in and out of our lives. I was struck on Twitter, there was somebody who had cut in half a copy of David Foster Wallace's big novel, Infinite Jest, yeah. uh, in order to be able to carry it on a commute more easily. This is a, a very common book. It was a book that belonged to this person, but existed in thousands of other copies. But everybody, I do know Twitter is not, it's not the world, but everybody was outraged by this as if damage yeah. or violence had been done to a, to a person, to a feeling body. And I saw lots of examples of that, the ways that we treat books as if they are more than inanimate mm. objects. We find mm -hmm. it hard to give them away. We have a different attitude to a person who hoards more books. Many of us have more books than we could ever read, actually, in our remaining life. But yeah. that is the sign of uh, an intellectual or high-minded person, whereas a person who has more cars than they can ever drive or handbags than they can ever take out somewhere that those people are seen to have you know a problem or too much money or you know so we treat the book and ownership of the book in a different way and I wanted to try and understand where that comes from and for me it partly comes from I think the fact that our first books were religious mm, yeah but bible and you know biblio as in you know bibliography or bibliotech they're the same word um, and the we can see the development of the book going sort of hand in hand with the development, with the extension, the evangelization of Christianity um, uh, in the first uh, centuries of the Christian era. Yeah. And of course, books expand to include all kinds of information uh, and content that's not religious. But I still think the book itself, the object, has retained some of that aura 
that makes it almost sacred in, in lots of places. We don't like to see books ripped up or thrown or treated in a in a disrespectful way. Right. And many cultures actually have a, a more formal version of that. You know, if you drop a book when you pick it up, you kiss it or you apologize or you, you know, you really do show reverence. Mm. Right. Yeah, I have this example from my personal life. When I was in college, I was just living in a dorm and my roommate was six feet away on a bed and neither of us had any nightstand or anything like that. There wasn't room for that kind of thing. And so I would just read my books and set them on the floor before I went to sleep. And as it happened, one of the books I had was the Bible, and uh, which I was reading for a class, I think. And my roommate just, he just kind of shivered and he said, it's a good thing my father's not here. And I said, oh, why? And he said, he would be beside himself that you have the Bible sitting on the floor. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating, isn't it? And often it is explicitly religious books which yeah. carry the extreme violent provocation of burning, in particular, burning mm. religious books. Yeah, it's Still in religious books, we understand that the object of the book needs to be treated with the same reverence as its contents. And of course, you know, that means we have an idea what religious books should look like. Mm. Uh, I love, did you remember the Jedi scriptures, which had been um, <laughs> invented for the, for the end of the Star Wars franchise? And we see Luke Skywalker you know, on his on his island, and he's there with the the ancient library, and it's gold and silver. It's the leather binding. It's the sort of blue of lapis lazuli. This is the kind of early medieval world of religious books, both uh, Islamic and and Judeo Christian, which is still what we imagine even a, a recently invented religion would need to have. Yeah. It's kind of that same dilemma, I guess is not quite the right word, but it's there's two approaches to religion. And one is to say the people who walk into this mighty cathedral or St. Peter's or something like that, they'll be overwhelmed by the dazzling power of this religion that was able to support such an edifice. And then the other would say, no, it, you know, to really impress people, you should have a plain, unadorned structure where you're just going in and, and focusing on the religion and, you know, the, the famous example of in Indiana Jones, where he's choosing, well, what is the Holy Grail going to look like? Ah, it's a carpenter's son who's, you know, it's just going to be plain wood. It's not going to be one of these elaborate bejeweled containers. And it, it's kind of like that with with books. You see the, the medieval manuscripts and they look like, I don't know, they're almost as elaborate as birthday cakes or something with the intricate designs and the magisterial impressive forms. But I guess you probably also found some religious texts that were trying to come in a plain and humble way as well. It's such a good example of how the different formats show that these the same content is going to be used in and experienced in quite different ways. So you're quite right that the, those sort of display copies are all about the power uh, of the religion. And in fact, that's what Gutenberg was doing mm. when he prints the first printed Bibles uh, in the middle of the 15th century. I think he's partly doing that at a point when Christendom, that the rule of Christianity in Europe has had this enormous shock, Constantinople has fallen to the Ottoman Empire. And there's a real sort of reverberation, you know, is the writing on the wall for Christianity? And what Gutenberg does is to publish this big format, made to last, 
kind of object that's making lots of different statements at the same time. But right around the same period, we have very small portable Bibles for friars and other Mm -hmm. evangelizing groups to carry around with them. And we can see at other points the way that cheap Bibles, right now you can see cheap Bible formats, the Gideon Bible Society is a a really interesting book producer, how those books have have spread, the kinds of Bibles that are being taken into into China or into other other places uh, right now. These are sort of, in those contexts, dissident books or hidden books, and, and they often have the form of that that's something more covert. So sometimes you're making a big statement about what's in your book and what and, and sometimes you're trying to slip it through unnoticed. Yeah, we have that in the States with the Constitution, where on the one hand, you know, you often see it portrayed as this almost like a scroll on yellow parchment. And it's this giant document, the kind of thing that you would see under glass in a museum or here in the National Archives in D.C. Or, you know, you can also get basically a free copy of it as a sort of pamphlet that bookstores and publishers and things will just give away to law school students or to high school students who are studying the Constitution as something you could just keep in a jacket pocket or carry around with you as not having that kind of talismanic power, but a sort of, well, these are words that belong to all of us and govern all of us, and it's good to have these close to us so we can consult it and remember that this is the source of our laws and so on. Yeah, the, the, the sort of citizen version and the, yeah, the kind of, as you say, talismanic version. I was really interested in books that have that talismanic feature, you know, the swearing on books is a very interesting right. uh, phenomenon, you know, that you would take an oath on a book. Here in the UK, we still have that. There was a survey about whether it should continue, given that a majority of people don't subscribe to one of these religions of the book. Uh, but nevertheless, we kept it as the way to secure testimony or other kind of legal statements. And there, that's exactly on the book as an object. It's not on the book. It's not reading from the book. It's not even opening the pages. It's putting your hand uh, on the closed volume. And if you look at, for example, the books that American presidents have sworn their oaths on, those are books with really important provenance. Do you use the same Bible that Lincoln chose? There's a great story about how Lincoln's books uh, were in transit at his inauguration. So a clerk ran out and and bought completely standard copy from a bookstore. But that has become a really iconic political document. Do you swear on that? Uh, Do you swear on the missile that was used uh, after JFK's assassination Mm. on Air Force One? You know, there, there are all kinds of ways in which these books have meanings which are not, which are to do with who's owned them and where they've come from and what their own life stories are, rather than the contents within them. Yeah. Now, another way of looking at the power of books is to look at the negative experiences. You say books are wonderful, challenging, transporting, dash, but sometimes also sickening, disturbing, enraging. So what are some examples you found of the latter? Do you know, the example that I really tried to tussle with, because it's so difficult for us, was uh, Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. Mm, mm -hmm. And I thought about that because it's funny that you mentioned Indiana Jones. Do you remember when he's at the book burnings in Berlin and he ends (laughs) up actually getting something signed by uh, by Hitler? So because Nazism, Nazi Germany was so associated, particularly in the American mind, 
with with book burning with mm. with the restrictions that became i suppose in advance of the the understanding of the true horror uh, of the genocide of the Holocaust, this was what was associated with fascism, these restrictions on human liberty. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, Americans, what they were fighting for was a kind of freedom, freedom to publish. And those paperbacks that I was talking about that go out to American service personnel, they're very, very diverse. They include uh, a book like Strange Fruit, which was about an interracial romance, which was actually very controversial at the time. So they're not a bland uh, assessment. So they were living that injunction to publish freely. Mm -hmm. But they had a terrible problem, as we have continued to, with what to do in that context with Mein Kampf. Should that circulate freely? Who should profit from it? What should be done with the profits? What were the obligations of the press to this poisonous material? And given that Nazi Germany was itself really a cult of the book, there were millions and millions of copies of Mein Kampf in pretty much every household, every soldier. There were loads and loads of military copies that you carried around with you uh, as a soldier. There were copies that couples got as wedding gifts given to them by the state. So this was the real symbol of the ideology of Nazi Germany. So it's all invested in that book. And what we don't get in Germany is the sort of a reduced or an abbreviated version or famous quotations from Mein Kampf. It's somehow not really even about the content. It's about this great big book. So it's been Mm. a huge problem ever since. Amazon has had difficulties sometimes thinking it will ban sales of it. The banning of it always produces a huge interest in the book. What we know elsewhere is the Barbara Streisand effect. You know, Barbara Streisand wanted to stop (laughs) the pictures of her uh, beachside house being circulated. (laughs) And of course, in doing that, made everybody interested. Right. What do they look like? (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, censorship, book censorship very much has that counter effect. In some ways, the best thing that could happen to my book, Portable Magic, is that it should be banned. Banned, right. (laughs) What to do with that? You know, how to do it. And Mein Kampf has just come out of copyright. And the Germans have had a really interesting sort of public discussion about what to do. And they've produced this highly scholarly, big two-volume critical edition, which has every quotation sort of scrutinized and every every page annotated. So you can't read it without it being framed by uh, all this commentary. But for some people, that's given it too much seriousness, really, you know, turned it into a book like Aristotle or something when it's when it shouldn't be. So it's really difficult to know what to do with these problem texts. And I think that's a problem that's as old as books themselves. Yeah, right. Because we we might object to the contents and say, well, this is propaganda or this is full of hate speech or this teaches people how to build a nuclear bomb or or whatever it is. And to say we can't have, even though we believe in free speech and we believe in books and we are against censorship and all of that, we also can see where books can be very harmful And what your book raised for me was, it's not just sort of a a question of should this knowledge be available for people to get, but all of the subsidiary questions like, 
who should profit from it and who should be in charge of deciding what happens with this book? Should it be the government? Should it be companies that are acting according to their conscience? Should it be individual readers who are voting with their pocketbooks and so on? And it it's very difficult when a book like that kind of exposes the underside of our ideals. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I talked about the attempts of the Catholic Church over many centuries to maintain an up-to-date list of uh, prohibited books. Mm, and mm-hmm. they finally give up in the 1960s and just think, oh, the tide is, you know, <laughs> the tide is, is against us. Um, right. And thinking, you know, what books get onto their air. But also the fact that, you know, there's plenty of evidence that this catalogue of forbidden books became, for some people, the must-have books. You know, the the, the very fact that they had been banned, again, um, drew attention to them. I think that those attempts to, institutional attempts to uh, censor have pretty much failed in the West. So we we have a pretty uncensored public sphere, largely because of, you know, the availability of online material. But book censorship is still alive and well, isn't it? And as you say, it's it's really at the level of consumers, parents particularly, mm-hmm. that very, very active local groups putting pressure on school districts, libraries, bookstores, and operating very effectively at a small scale where it's actually easier just to say, okay, we withdraw that or we won't sell that, we won't, we won't let young people read that. Mm. So book censorship at the level of the state here in the West is it's pretty much gone, but at the level of individual communities is very, very alive. Yeah. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back. And I want to ask you about the elephant in the in the room here, which I think is the Internet. Okay, we're back with Emma Smith. So the internet, maybe the first thing I noticed was how it changed bookstores. It used to be every time I would go to a new country or certainly even a new city, I would head to the bookstores, go to the used bookstores. I'd find books there that were out of print and unavailable, and it would be kind of this moment of, oh, wow, look at this. I can discover this book. And then all of a sudden, every book was available to me at all times. And I no longer had this relationship with bookstores. It didn't become a a, a must-do necessarily, because even though the experience of going in there was still enjoyable and I still could have that feeling of discovery, it just kind of took away the necessity of it. And so it has kind of made me think as I've been thinking about your book and that books being objects as well as just words, kind of that distinction and an e-reader or PDFs available online and, and so on. We can, we can get the text in different places, but where are we headed in terms of that relationship we have with books as objects? It's such a great question because you're absolutely right that the serendipity of the books that you might find, mm. particularly secondhand, you didn't know what whether you were going to be able to find something that you knew you wanted or something that you didn't even know you wanted. I guess the second of those we still get, you know, browsing physical books mm-hmm. in a bookstore is yeah. a different experience 
from browsing in any form online, I think is often less satisfying. If you know what you want, the internet will find it. If you don't know what you want, it may not help you discover it, perhaps. Although I must say, uh, although I try and support local bookshops, as many of us do, I do find Amazon's recommendations very, very accurate and often draw my attention to things <laughs> I don't know I want, you know. Right. Having the customer reviews right there. Yeah, and like absolutely. there are some very good things about the book buying experience, but we do miss that it's almost like speed dating with the books when you can look at the spines on the shelf and you just know from the size and the thickness and maybe holding it in your hand and opening it up, you know what kind of book you're getting in a way that, I don't know, a lot of people are probably like me where they've been disappointed. They buy a book online, they get it and they think, oh, I didn't realize the print was going to be so tiny. This isn't going yeah. to be the experience. Be I, yeah, yeah or, or this book, oh, I didn't realize it was 900 pages. I was looking for a biography that was more like 200 pages, you know, and all of those things you sort of, you can't replicate the physical bookstore. But on the other hand, a bookstore can't replicate having 10 million titles available either. I think there are lots of aspects to this. I sometimes buy print-on-demand books, which is another thing that's now possible, which wasn't before. And whenever I do, I when I open them, I realise they have a strange smell. They have a very highly chemical smell, mm. which must be to do with the printing process. Mm -hmm. And they are not very often, they're not very pleasurable books to operate yeah uh, it's not a nice experience so it's it's you know it's usually useful content but it's not a nice experience one consequence of the availability of online or electronic books has actually been much more care and attention given by mainstream publishers to new modern books and, mm. and their format so they're tending mm -hmm. to be better produced, more artistically interesting, better yeah. stitching. There's a, a novel by a British novelist called Charlotte Mendelssohn, which I've been enjoying this year, which has four-edge painting, you know, a, a kind of decoration which you can see on the outer pages when they're all closed together in the book. There's a sort of decoration there. Now, that was an 18th century hand-done thing that people did to pimp up their books, which we haven't seen really for centuries. And it's interesting to see that kind of thing yeah, back in the history right. book. And I think that must be a response to the ebook experience, thinking if you are going to opt for a physical book, let's really go for it. Let's emphasise the pleasures of that, the weight of the paper, maybe a little a ribbon marker, yeah, uh, a nice right. cover or something. Maybe people are more interested in carefully produced physical books because they know they can get the content elsewhere. Yeah, Maybe cheap books, really cheap books have had their day because the really cheapest way to access the content of books is, is online. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps the physical books that will remain are of our sort of higher quality. I, I worry slightly that I don't want books to become the vinyl of right. the 2030s. Right, That's right. to say something that is highly desired by a very small and enthusiastic niche of people, mm -hmm. whereas and everybody else accesses that material in other ways. And the music industry is, I think, a really interesting way that's obviously ahead of the book industry in all kinds of ways, but a really interesting way to think, you know, is that the way that we're headed? Right. We've mostly given up album cover art, except, as you say, for a really niche audience who sort of says, no, no, I want the experience just like I used to have or my 
father or maybe my grandfather <laughs> used to have, yep. uh, depending how young they are. You know, 1975, you'd get the album, you'd you'd look at the cover, you'd maybe read the lyrics, you'd see who the musicians were, and you'd sit with the album while you were listening to it. We've kind of given all that up in favor of streaming, but we've kind of lost something as well. Well, it's a completely differently curated way to encounter music, isn't it? In lots of ways, we've in many ways have lost the album as well, or the album is no longer the unit of of musical mm-hmm. delivery, yeah. um, just as in some ways the poetry collection might be an equivalent. Uh, would we get, you know, individual poems as the the unit of, of what we want to buy? I was really interested that Amazon have been trialing a Kindle subscription where you pay according to how many pages you read oh. rather than you pay per book uh, <laughs> right. or per, oh, per download. Well, yeah. I know it would be terrifying if you're a writer to know, yeah, you only got three cents from this because yeah. nobody yeah. has page two. Um, <laughs> but it's, a, it's an interesting idea that you pay to consume rather than you pay for the object. And that felt to me quite a challenge for mm. what a book is because what has been the same hitherto is that the the content of the book is the same whether you get it uh you know as a as a for an ebook reader or whether you get it as a physical book the idea of the book the idea of the book contents is the same that hasn't really been challenged but this model readership model did seem to me to challenge challenge that in certain ways mhm yeah it's almost like another example i was thinking of is film where it it seems like they were faced with a similar dilemma once DVD sales dropped off and they were dealing with streaming and, and so on and people at home having larger and larger television sets. And so their experience was kind of starting to rival what people would get from going to the movies. And they kind of responded by saying, OK, we get that you're going to be watching a lot of these at home, but if you come to the theater, we'll give you a lot of special effects and you'll have mm. action sequences with the sound and the size of the screen and everything that you just won't be able to replicate. Like, this is a movie you want to see in the theater. And we ended up kind of, I don't know if we'd lost costume dramas and, you know, regular dramas of just people without superhero costumes and so on. I don't know if we'd lost it or if it just shifted over to the streamers and the the television stations and so on. But we kind of lost what we had in the 80s and 90s of movies that you would go to that didn't have a lot of action sequences and so on. And so it seems like it kind of forced the changes in content. And when you're describing people reading by page, I could see where authors would start writing a lot of cliffhangers into even books that maybe wouldn't necessarily have cliffhangers and something to keep you turning the pages and previewing what's to come and all of these different ways they could build in. Well, how do I keep people going from page to page to page? And that would be back, wouldn't it, to the serial stories of the 19th century? Dickens wrote all his novels in serial form. You had to make each one something that people wanted to buy the next one. You partly segmented them to make them cheaper, to to make them available to a wider audience. But you also needed to keep your readers and you can see uh, how those uh, stories are structured around that form. So it's a really great example of how form and content, you know, publishing form or the form of the media uh, more generally, as as you said uh, about film, really does change what 
we encounter in it and what meanings we give it. And one of the things that was so interesting to me thinking about a long history of books, so I, I don't start at the beginning and come to now, but what I do see is lots of um, sort of parallel or echoes across this long uh, mm-hmm. history and the question of keeping audiences interested and the commercial aspect of books has been obviously ongoing. Books only get produced because there is a, a market for them. Printing only came to Europe because there was a market for its products. And so the market, the economic factors, the commercial factors are and the way they've changed and been interwoven with what we get to read are really fascinating. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind as we look to the future and have this idea that maybe the movement that will be made in response to the latest technological change, I'm sure technological change has been one of the recurring themes that you've seen as things have changed in the way people are able to produce books. It's probably changed what authors do and what readers expect and so on. But It seems like if where we're headed is these books as these beautiful objects and books as something a little bit special and something that can justify the $20 price tag and so on, is that it will raise awareness, perhaps, of the people who work on books who aren't just the author. And they're kind of the unsung heroes of books, these cover designers and the people who do the typesetting and the brands of books that are put out. Penguin, for example, is one everyone is familiar with. There's something special about getting a book you know is a penguin and fits into the whole penguin ethos and people find that special. Maybe we'll see that more and more with a kind of it would be kind of nice if the covers and so on, if some of the people who make books as and the reading experience as great as it is, who get a little more credit for being part of that process. I would love that. And there's one publisher, and I just can't remember who it is, but I've noticed that they have started to give a list in the book of everybody who worked on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and really begun to acknowledge the enormous act of teamwork that goes into the physical production of books, you know, the marketing, the design, all of those elements that, as you say, is often hidden. I mean, whatever writers do, they don't write books. You know, books are made by a whole lot of people, uh, not usually writers. So it is absolutely important to bring that to the fore and to make us more conscious, perhaps as we're becoming a bit more conscious generally of where do the commodities we enjoy come from? And what has gone into their making? And are we okay with that? Mm. Is it ethically or, you know, environmentally or whatever? Is that a good supply line? And one of the things, for example, that I think we're thinking a lot more about is books and book waste. Mm. Uh, The book modern publishing industry has a lot of waste built into it. Oh, right, right. An awful lot of books are withdrawn and pulped. pulped. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's and re, you know some of them are recycled into other books, but you know that paper pulp is used for other things. Whether this is a an, an industry which is a, a bit casual about that level of waste, I think is a, an important question right now. Mm. Okay, so last question: What is your hope for your book? What do you hope readers will take away from their experience that they have when they hold your book in their hand? I really hope, and I love hearing when this happens, I really hope that readers will read my book and it will make them think about the books in their own life. 
the books from their past, from their childhood, perhaps books that were important to them or books that they read with grandparents or, you know, times that are lost. And to think about the emotional weight that those books carry in their lives. Uh, mm. That's what I really hope. Yeah. And not just what we often say of, well, books can take you places you've never been and they can send you into the past and so on, which could apply to the words too, but the actual relationship and the importance of the physical book that you had in your life for that period of time. Yeah. Okay, that's beautiful. Emma Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. My thanks to three people. Well, somewhere between three and infinite, I guess. Two plus infinity. Two plus infinity. What number is that? Well, number one, Emma Smith. Let's start there. Wasn't that fun? I told you she was fun. I had such a good time talking to her. Do check out her book, Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers. My thanks also to Franz Kafka for writing The Carousel 111 years ago. And my thanks to all the writers and readers who have ever been and ever will be. And all the unsung heroes who bring us those books and put those beautiful little objects in our hands. My grubby little hands in my case, and to all of you, dear listeners, who let me keep opening my gates and releasing my hounds. I'm not sure what that means. My emotional hounds, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means either. They don't bite, though. They chase you for a while, pursuing you viciously, and then as they bear down and they finally get close, they lie down and cry. I'm Jack Wilson. He of the emotional hounds. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>